0: you're listening to insights at the edge today i speak with robert augustus masters for part two of our conversation on emotional intimacy robert augustus masters is an integral psychotherapist a relationship expert and spiritual teacher whose work blends the psychological and physical with the spiritual emphasizing embodiment emotional literacy and the development of relational maturity He's the author of 13 books, including Transformation Through Intimacy and Spiritual Bypassing. Available through Sounds True, Robert has released the audio learning series, Knowing Your Shadow, Becoming Intimate With All That You Are, and a new book, Emotional Intimacy, a comprehensive guide for connecting with the power of your emotions. In this episode of Insights at the Edge... Robert and I spoke about the importance of mutual transparency in relationships and how our pre-verbal attachment styles can play out in committed relationship. We also talked about the difference between catharsis and what Robert calls connected catharsis. And finally, we talked about how to recognize when we're engaged in avoiding emotional experience through spiritual bypassing and starting to identify and work with our own shadow material. Here's part two of my conversation with Dr. Robert Augustus Masters on emotional intimacy. In part one of our conversation, Robert, you talked about turning towards our emotions, even emotions that are difficult and challenging, Emotions like anger and fear and sadness. And I'm curious how you would talk to somebody who says, I know that I have some emotion that is quite challenging in my experience right now, but I have a lot of resistance to turning towards it. How do you suggest people work with that resistance when it comes up?
1: What I usually would do in that situation is, is have the person turn toward the resistance. This is after explaining to them that their resistance is not necessarily something wrong or bad or an obstacle to the process. It's actually part of it. There's a lot of energy trapped in the resistance. There's a lot of potential growth in facing it. And then I would have them with me explore that resistance more, explore the roots of it um, when they felt a similar type of resistance or at other times in their life. In other words, we would get to know that their so-called resistance and realize. This had an origin, there were reasons for it, and I'm not here to dismantle it or take it away. I'm here to help you explore it. Once that resistance is explored, emotion will inevitably surface anyways, and there's no rush on that. But if if people sense that their resistance is being seen as something wrong or that it shouldn't be there, they'll tighten up even more. So it's really important to treat it as something worthy of respect. And I think everyone that's doing deep work, has a desire to go into their depths and to heal and awaken. They also have resistance to doing it, so you both need to be addressed.
0: Now, what if the resistance is experienced as a type of numbness or deadness? I mean, how do you work with that?
1: Uh, very skillfully. And again, by naming it, by explaining a bit about it, and by saying everyone has certain areas of numbness at different times, and that numbness usually has a lot of feeling underneath it. And it has to be approached very, very caringly, skillfully, but it has to be approached. So I would I would create a context for working with numbness without shaming them at all for having any numbness. Then we start to take their attention into the numbness, bit by bit, through guided meditations, body work, some role playing, some psychotherapeutic direction, whatever works. And also, of course, including the origins of it, when that way of numbing oneself became a survival strategy, which is usually, that's usually the case for many of us. It was it helped us survive some very difficult times in our early life. Once that's happened, the emotions tend to flow freely anyways, the, the hurt, the anger, whatever's there. But that layer of numbness has to be treated um, great care.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Robert, people have, you know, different kinds of resistance to the type of emotional intimacy, deep emotional intimacy that you described in part one. For example, someone could eat a lot of a certain kind of food that helps deaden their sensitivity or various other things that people do to deaden sensitivity. What's your suggestion when someone admits this but says, you know, I'm admitting it while I'm, you know, shoving the cupcakes in or whatever?
1: Well, I'd want to get more information on on, on that habit, or for a man it might be a pornographic habit, he's been going at a long time, and gradually to have them sense what are they feeling. In other words, what are you feeling right before you go toward that habit and start to indulge it or act it out? What's going on? And invariably is some sort of hurt and loneliness, some sort of pain, and I'll teach them how to stay with that painful uh, sensation or feeling without saying you shouldn't be acting out, you shouldn't, should not be eating, you should not be watching porn. It's more like let's explore this. It's a more skillful thing. Let's explore the pain. So just spend five or ten minutes with it each time you have an urge to act out, so when you're away from the therapeutic chambers. And I find that to be very successful. Because in that, they're not shaming themselves for the habit and then taking off the edge of the shame by acting it out. They're actually sitting with the original pain, which goes back usually to the early years. You know, and when that pain is, is explored more deeply, uh, they start to lose their charge for acting out. They have more excitement around exploring that pain because there's more growth there. There's more healing. But that begins with not shaming the, the person for their habit. You're also not saying it's okay, it's a wonderful thing to do, but you're saying let's focus on something that's more central here. Let's focus on what I would call a core wound that is kind of fueling this habit because there's a sense in the person in that situation of wanting to get away from the original pain, and what we're doing in a therapeutic position is slowly but surely helping them turn toward the pain and supporting them in that.
0: Now it's the second time that you've brought up men and pornography, and I'm curious: Do you have a sense from your work that when men turn to pornography, that that is usually some avoidance of some deeper material, or might yes, it be?
1: And every every case I've ever seen, it was the, there was something else going on that was not sexual at all. It was emotional, and it was painful. And this become, became a solution to loneliness, um, fear, all kinds of things, but in a very unskillful solution. And most men I've worked with would would agree that it's very unskillful and they feel very driven, and it becomes their default. When they're under tension or strain or they're unhappy, here's porn. Just like it was when they were a young teenager, here's porn. So it's, it's their solution to something very painful. And, and of course, it makes them less and less capable of real intimacy with another person the more they pursue it and another part of the uh solution for me is to have them humanize whatever they're viewing in the porn and most men will tell me once they start to humanize whoever they're watching act out sexual stuff in front of them it's harder for them to be turned on they have less charge they start to feel their heart more and it's harder to just go into a pure genital release is more. Oh my God! I can see her. I can see him. And and um, and in that, they also also start to see who they were before they ever got pornographic. So might as well have them keep a picture of themselves near a child close by. To take a good look at that picture and see if you still want to act out. And and my part too is to help them go deeper and deeper into the emotional pain to where they actually become intimate with that pain where that emotion is no longer a problem, doesn't have to be fixed through going to porn or overeating or whatever. They can actually stay present with it. Of course, this is not something that happens in one session, but it is quite doable. And I do, I do address this because I, I see uh, pornography as an epidemic now in our culture. It's, 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 with the Internet, it's like so widespread. I mean, not all men I work with have gotten caught in it, but an awful lot are, are still stuck in that web.
0: I'd like to ask a couple more questions about it, if that's okay. It's not an area that I know a lot about, but I could imagine somebody saying, isn't engaging in porn as a way to release sexuality, isn't that just fine and innocent and sexually liberated behavior?
1: I wouldn't say it's sexually liberated. I'd say it's fine for a young teenager. For an older man, though, it's this, it's a very unskillful approach. If he has a lot of tension or fear, anxiety, yes, it would take the edge off, and so would masturbating without any imagery take the edge off. But I would say more skillful, explore the emotion itself. Because it's, it's, a lot of times someone could have a lot of built-up anxiety. The guy has a lot of built-up anxiety and fear, maybe some anger, and an ejaculation suddenly relieves him of that temporarily, but it's a temporary fix. It's like, oh, and pornography becomes the the catalyst for that. Now, he could do it even without pornography, but still, it's it's an isolated act, often lonely, and it strands a man from his capacity to be truly intimate, especially sexually, to where he can not look at a woman he's with uh, as though she has to fit a certain ideal or a pornographic image he's had in mind for a long time. He can actually see her as she truly is, the good, the bad, all of it, he can see it and he can connect with that. That's made very difficult when pornography becomes a man's sexual default. And I think the only way out of that really is to turn toward and work with the, the pain that, that animates the urge to be um, pornographic. Like if a man really craved, craved, craved being wanted by um, his parents when he's little and it wasn't fulfilled, he's going to have a charge a negative charge of not being seen, not being loved. And that's not sexual. It's deeper than that. He gets older and he finds a way to eroticize that charge and suddenly he finds that if he sexualizes it, it takes the edge off it temporarily. And then, of course, short time passes and he feels the same dark feelings and he turns to it again and again and then he's suddenly he's in an addictive loop. But the good news is there's a way out But that means... Again, the difficult work of of, of of getting closer to what's painful in us and, and, and treating it like a distraught child or hurt child rather than trying to get away from it through using sexual outlets or um, electronic outlets. There's also so many ways we can get away from, from this, and none of them really serve us in the long term.
0: I guess the thing I want to just be clear about here before we leave this topic of men and pornography is... It sounds like you think that by addictive engagement with pornography that there's an obstacle that becomes present in one's intimate relationship, that it becomes harder yes. to connect deeply in intimacy. I'd love to understand why you have that view.
1: Well, I have it in part because I've, I've seen it Um Manifest and everyone I've worked with has been engaged thus. And I know when I work, we work with couples to become closer. If the man is seeing his partner through pornographic eyes when his sexual energy rises, he won't be making love with her. He won't be able to see her, feel her. The aphrodisiac will be his pornographic link up between his mind and his genitals, as opposed to the aphrodisiac being his connection with her. I think the deepest sex between partners is when the aphrodisiac is the connection, the intimacy, the the open-eyed mutuality, and I think pornography uh, tends to distract us from that in a very powerful way, especially when it's and uh, when one is addicted to it.
0: Now I want to talk more about our relational life. In part one, we talked about fear and what it means to turn towards fear, fear when one has a cancer diagnosis or fear when it comes up in the body. And I think one of the places where people feel a lot of fear is in intimate relationships, whether it's the fear of being close, the fear of being abandoned, the fear of intimacy. So talk a little bit about that and how you can help people work with fear in their intimate relationships.
1: Well, first of all, by helping them see that on one hand, everyone loves would love to have a really deeply intimate truly nourishing relationship but not as so many of us want to pay the price of that do the work that that entails to make that possible and and so that means teasing out one's fears of being close perhaps if being close as a child meant um, getting hurt in some way we may associate being close with a lot of things that aren't so pleasant so when we get really close to a partner not just sexually suddenly we've feel like we're face-to-face at a very deep level with something very unpleasant that either is going to happen or is happening. And and um, we may have, for example, a fear of being swallowed up by a, a partner, overwhelmed by him or her, um, revolving around that person, giving our power away, scrambling to meet their standards. You know, I often see the power imbalance in couples in this regard. And all of that makes it really difficult to be intimate it makes it easy to be codependent to be for the mutual neuroses of each to mesh together but real intimacy is a is an art that combines being really really close but maintaining just enough distance to keep the other in clear focus when that happens you don't fuse with the other person you also don't stand back and kind of a, a detached separateness you're in really close and yet you still are in touch with you. So the image I would have would be uh, of the two people, instead of collapsing their boundaries to become at one, which characterizes typical romance, instead they would expand their boundaries to include the other. So they still are intact as a being. They still are in touch with themselves as a discrete being. But they're also including the other in the circle of their of their beingness. And that's real intimacy. And it requires you can't you can't do it as an automatic thing. It, you, there's a there's an ongoing sense of maintaining a certain focus, and honoring each other's integrity as a separate being at the same time, being really close, knowing each other really really well, and having a commitment to to a very deep transparency, a mutual transparency.
0: Now you've used that phrase a couple of times, transparency and mutual transparency. Can you tell me what you mean by that?
1: Showing the other what's going on, letting the other know what's going on, and this has levels to it. Initially, it's just to not act like you're not angry when you are, to not act like you're not being defensive when you are. So if you're transparent, it's important, for example, if you're defensive, say, you know, to your partner, your friend, I'm being defensive right now, or I'm being reactive, or I'm embarrassed to say this, but here's what's going on. Deeper levels, you might even expose your, your motivations. For example, someone might get very vulnerable with someone else in order to get something from that person. It's so it's it's, it's like blowing a whistle on yourself, and risking that it's an inherently vulnerable undertaking to show yourself that much to another person. That's why it's not very common. It sounds good on paper, but to expose your shame or when you've 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 behaved in a way that does not feel like it fits with your current image of yourself, it's so important to share that. And eventually, you say, you no, no, here I am, you know here it is, I'm being reactive, um, I know what I'm saying just hurts you. It's, it's saying statements that you might be hesitant to normally, uh, you'd normally withhold and choosing to share them. So I often say to couples who have done a lot of deep work, what's the most, what are you most afraid to let the other person know about you that still is important to know? And it's usually they'll come forward with that and it almost always deepens the intimacy. Perhaps one of them has a a secret mistrust of the other, and they share the mistrust. In other words, they trust the other person with their mistrust, and it's usually well-received, and it creates more opening, more vulnerability. See, hand-in-hand with transparency is vulnerability, showing ourselves and and, uh, finding a source of strength in that rather than feeling like we're somehow being weak or we're caving in in some way. Real vulnerability is not a, a submission. It's a surrender.
0: In the moment of being defensive, I mean, I've noticed times when I can tell I'm being defensive, but I'm not at that place where I
1: can admit it,
0: really, in that moment. Maybe I could admit it a day later or a few days later. But in the moment, obviously, I'm being defensive. I'm defensive.
1: I'll bet you could admit it earlier, but it's an really interesting question to say, what, what's stopping me or what, what, what would I feel if I was to say it early? You know, if you only, if you only waited, say, five or ten minutes rather than a day you probably would feel some shame over that here you are after all this working yourself and here you are being defensive with your partner or a dear friend. And that's important to share too. Like you could even say, God, I feel embarrassed to admit this. I mean, I, I'm, and I, I can see that I was even talking as though I wasn't being defensive or I'm being defensive about being defensive. It's a, it's a willingness to take down the guard. And of course not with everyone, but with certain people you're really close to, I think it's really important to, to practice doing that earlier or, you could even have a signal if you find it very hard to um, speak it. If you feel a little thickened in the throat or tongue-tied, you could hold up a hand or in a certain position to signal that you you know what you're doing and it's really hard to speak. Because mm-hmm. some people literally cannot talk when they're in the midst of being reactive. They they get choked up. Their words don't come. hmm And it, it, it is a stretch.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, if you, if you cut your time down between when you are doing it and when you share it, you can see that as a sign of growth. If you cut it down from a day to half a day to an hour, that's, a, that's, that's something worth celebrating, I think. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who would never, ever admit their defense, if not even a day later.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: could be a year.
0: Now, Robert, in part one of our conversation, we talked about how many of our conditioned responses in situations come from preverbal. Origins. And yeah. when it comes to being in relationship, I know there's a lot of research and teaching in psychotherapy recently on attachment styles and how, as a very, very young person, we attached or didn't attach well in our family configuration. What's your view of how attachment styles play out in terms of our emotional Ability in relationships.
1: I think it makes a huge, huge difference. If we didn't have our early attachment needs met properly, we will probably carry that forward into almost all our adult relationships. If we don't work on it, if we don't, know, if we don't understand that that we really crave something safe from mother and it didn't happen, and then we, as an adult, we sexualize that and we find ourselves attracted to, to women who are like that, who are a little little separate, a little cut off from us, um, who don't give us that, and we try and get them to give it to us, and we don't realize usually that we're, we're just acting as something really old stuff from our early days of not being a, uh, handled properly in an attachment context. So I think it's really important to know that because we all crave that. And in deep relationship, we're all craving to be so seen, but it doesn't work to just have the other person be all available and just be the mother we never had, It's more about us waking up to that early pattern and giving ourselves what we didn't get then. Like I can't, sometimes I'll say to people, give yourself what you want others to give to you as a practice uh, so that we are are doing the healing ourselves. Otherwise, we always expect our partner to fulfill us, and that will not work because then we get a certain addictive uh, leaning toward them, and they become a surrogate parent rather than a true partner. And the key there is to wake up to the early conditioning, wake up to it fully as you can, and not let it run the show. Just because your mother did never gave you what you wanted, we're all capable of giving that to ourselves if we work at it. And then we don't depend on the other person to be the supplier of that old need.
0: Mm-hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. Sounds True hosts an annual wake-up festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the wake-up festival, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash wake-up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, in your book, Transformation Through Intimacy, you seem to have a very strong, I mean, bias is not even really a strong enough word. You take a strong position that to do the kind of work you're describing that monogamy is a required formation. And I'm curious if you could talk about that a bit.
1: Yeah, that's based on my experience and the experience of many other people I've known, that that, um, that creates a safe enough container for the work. And even if two people were capable of bringing a third or fourth party into the relationship fully, it would take up so much time to keep things clear, clean, work on it, I don't think it would be possible. I think most people who are capable of that are, are not interested. It's enough to be really close to one person and have deep, deep intimacy with them. And I I feel about it very strongly because I've not seen the other alternatives work in my experience. And so that's why I stress it so strongly. And I, I see most monogamy as, as no healthier than, than multiple partnering. Or polyamory, but I think what I call awakened monogamy or mature monogamy is not is actually a further stage. Perhaps one has already gone through immature monogamy, of course, and perhaps is also experiment. Not that one has to experiment, but one perhaps knows that that is very hard to maintain. Very hard to maintain. I remember Stephen and Andre Levine being interviewed about this a long time ago, and saying they just they felt the same way i do like you just have to have that as the container it may sound rigid it may even sound tight too tightly moralistic but it's more like here's the most skillful thing you can do here's a container for two that certainly can include other people in all kinds of ways but not but not not as lovers it's just it just makes it too complex to me and i think i think um monogamy is a is a is a choice at the highest levels that does not limit us, that actually frees us. We find freedom through the very limitation of it. In other words, we can go very, very deep with one partner, and we can find through that depth of that partner kind of a communion with all other beings. If we go into it deeply enough, so the the two becomes a, a gateway to the one and the many without having to sexualize it
0: and if somebody said oh come on robert i mean this is clearly this is what works for you but you know different strokes for different folks there are just different breeds of humans out there and certain humans who they're wired differently couldn't you have a view that would include that i would, i
1: would say they're conditioned differently i don't know about wired I, I've, everyone i've worked with has, has done um serious polyamory serious multiple partnering not just not just casual stuff have almost invariably, it's been a reflection of early life conditioning, and they were doing it as a solution to that, and they weren't really that connected to the others. And I haven't seen it work. I mean, I, I theoretically, I could see it could work, but I think polyamory and, and, and regular monogamy are like two sides of the same coin. I think beyond that is a stage I would call awake monogamy, and I, some have asked me the very questions you have. I say, well, that's just my experience. where I've taken my stand and if I'd seen the other work, I would, I would, I would, I would certainly acknowledge that. But I, I haven't, I haven't, and I've looked.
0: And just to make sure I'm clear, how are you differentiating between "quote unquote" regular monogamy and awakened monogamy?
1: Regular monogamy, I, it's uh, in a nutshell, I would, I would call a cult of two. It's two people that have come together, and they're they're not. Their neuroses match up. It's, a lot of it's classic codependence. It's often very me centered, and it's an arrangement that kind of suits them, but it does. There's not much growth in it, and it's deadening. Most people who are doing that. Will find themselves deadened after a short time. They're not really close. If the sex wears off, they don't. There's not much else left. They're not really close. They're not intimate. And I think um, in awaken or mature monogamy, the partners are in a radically different state. They're very close. They're very connected on many many levels, and they stay thus and they deepen. In between the two, I see a stage I called. Um, uh, we centered co independent, not codependent, but co independent, where both parties have their autonomy as individuals. They're not fused, they're not codependent, and they're a little too far apart to be deeply intimate, but they start to work on themselves. They start to sense that beyond where they are is a further stage of relationship, and they're leaning toward that. And that's how I see the, the basic structure of it unfolding.
0: Okay, so we've talked quite a bit about fear and about anger and how in your work with emotional intimacy, unlike the way many spiritual teachings look at fear and anger, you don't see the job of the person who's becoming emotionally intimate to be fearless or to never experience anger. So I, I'm with you. Now I want to turn to sadness, because often in spiritual teachings, they'll say, you know, come on, cheer up, lighten up, <laughs> you know, let it go, just yeah. let it go. Don't be, you, oh. no, don't hold on to your sadness. So what is your view of sadness?
1: Well, I, I certainly don't agree with what you just expressed with the other people's views on it. That, that I, I think sadness is a, is a really important emotion, and, and I think when anyone is told what you just described, there's actually perhaps an unwitting shaming of the person for having sadness or needing to cry. And, I mean, one can get lost in sadness, stuck in it, and and, uh, be depressed in it. One also can go to the core of it and just sense sadness is loss taken to heart. Loss taken to heart. So, and crying, real tears, is an inherently healing process. There's endorphins in the tears. If you if or I cut onions and we, we start to get tears, those, those are different tears chemically. Real tears are healing. And the way the body moves when crying is uninhibited the heaving, the shaking, the undulating of the torso a lot is released. It's almost like having a really long, good laugh, but it goes even deeper, I think. Even deeper. And it bothers me to see any pathologizing of sadness, like somehow it's a lesser activity. And I would question those who are saying that, like, when did you last cry? Do you, Other than just having a few tears that maybe a, a tearjerker movie, when did you last really let it go? It's all there. I mean, there's so much to feel grief around. And sadness, of course, at its extreme, can become gr- there's grief, which is a, a real passion. And I think our whole world is full of um, clogged grief, blocked grief, we don't grieve together very much. We don't go to the heart of the matter and just feel how much pain there is here. And I think the appropriate response to that is sometimes to cry or get angry. But to stay flat and impassive in the face of others' suffering, to me, doesn't really serve them.
0: And how do you suggest somebody work with their grief? What is your view of that?
1: Let it out. Let it out. And be in a, and find a place where you can let it out with dear friends, friends. Uh, good therapist just let it flow and don't expect it to not be messy when we work with people who are in deep deep grief it's not just crying there's rage There's there's fluids everywhere there's just there's, it's messy it's a bit like birth it's really messy and it's very noisy sometimes but wow what emerges is beautiful because grief is not just heavy sadness there's a spaciousness to it too which has always astonished me and moved me where one grieves deeply it shifts from my grief our grief to the grief. And it's almost as if the sky opens up wider. There's a sense of holding everyone's sorrow at a certain time. I think grief can connect us deeply. Deeply. If people who are at war with each other, if they were to grieve together, be, I think there'd be a really strong healing. I've watched people grieve together who were quite separate. And it became one heart after a while one beautiful melting heart. Not soppy or sentimental at all, just raw feeling, raw grief. You know, I, I personally find expression of grief very, very beautiful. It's chaotic; it doesn't follow a set pattern, and it's very healing. And I see people have had major losses that come to us. I don't waste a lot of time analyzing and talking about it. It's more like, let's get into it. We create a sanctuary for them—a sense of a feeling of sanctuary—and the tears come, the rage, the feeling. Do body work with it, and there's movement. Is movement. And to keep that in, grief is so huge. It's so huge. It's like rage in the sense of its internal size or deep lust and, or ecstasy. And it needs, to, it needs to move. It needs to move. And it doesn't need to be quiet. So many people are trying to be quiet with their grief, trying to be strong for the family or strong. That's not, that's not strength. That's weakness. I think the real strength is to really get past our inhibitions about being noisy and just let it flood a flood, a beautiful flow.
0: Well, when you talk about grief that way and compare it to birth and the sobbing and the body fluids, the whole thing, I'm curious to know, emotional catharsis in general, what you think are the do's and don'ts or the pros and cons?
1: I think um, catharsis has gotten a bad name in many um, therapeutic circles because it's not been always handled well. Like just catharsis for its own sake is not necessarily that good. It, it, it could be no more than emotional masturbation, just blowing off some steam, which now and then can have value, but it's not inherently this really wonderful thing to keep engaging in. The catharsis I advocate is what I call connected catharsis. That means whatever emotional expression that's coming out in a full-bodied way is done while knowing the roots of it. Well, understanding what it's connected to. So you're not just raging just because you you built up a head of steam. You're raging because you're remembering something that happened that was really painful and difficult. You had to suppress your anger at the time about, and now you can really cut loose with it in perhaps an environment where there's really caring people with you, therapists, friends, whatever. And that catharsis is is healing. It's not just a release. It's, it's It's a knowing that goes with it. So I think catharsis has to be approached um, very skillfully. It, as it, Just unto itself, is not necessarily a good thing, but it can be a wonderful, wonderful part of uh, any deep therapy. Uh, spiritual practice, too. I mean, it's important to let it flow. I remember one of Jack Cornfield's teachers said anyone who hasn't cried deeply during meditation retreats hasn't really practiced.
0: Now, when you're describing connected catharsis, you're talking about, having to know inside what all of this emotion is related to? I have to have an awareness of that versus simply expressing the emotion? Well, it
1: can start off, if someone, for example, if, if their tears come on really suddenly and they're crying hard, and we know that they're, they've just lost someone dear to them, I'm going to bring that into it. It's, that's a pretty obvious example. But to bring that in, So that I, I might say, now, say their name. Let your arms reach toward that person. Say it might be a child that's died. Let them reach so that I'm connecting the catharsis more and more with something specific. So they're not just blowing off steam. They're actually sensing the roots. It's not like they've analyzed it or thinking about it. It's more like they just know. Or I may remind them of it as they're doing their release work so that they stay connected. And then they're discharging a lot of the energies that were actually uh, stored in them from a long time ago. The anger they never dared express near a little. To express that in context, in context, allows more of a healing, a deeper healing.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've talked some about sadness and now grief. What do you think of depression in the context of this conversation? Do you see depression as an emotion or as something else?
1: No. No, I don't. I've, I've, I see depression as, as, as what it suggests in, this, in, this, in this, the form of the word depression. It's a pressing down of the self and a waiting down. And it can look like sadness. It can contain sadness. But sadness isn't necessarily just a, a, a sagging, a waiting down. Depression flattens us. You know, I think we all get depressed sometimes, but um, sometimes it gets very intense where it becomes uh, pathological and requires medication. But I think when I work with depression, I've done it for a long time with clients, it's always a matter of, of exploring what is not being expressed or is only being expressed partially. I think depression is kind of a pain that walls away a deeper pain. It, it doesn't feel good. It's unpleasant. But what's underneath it often is, is more scarier to face. So I, I think we've, we, in essence, prefer the burdened beasts of depression to the monsters of the deep. And depression kind of incarcerates us. It keeps us down. Maybe we learned that when we were very young, it was a survival mechanism when life was too difficult. We kind of flatten ourselves and settle down and numb ourselves a little bit. There's some numbness in it too. And um once a person has tapped into the real hurt and anger beneath all of it and that's expressed, they're not depressed anymore, they're pissed off, they're sad, they're hurt, and they have more energy especially when the anger starts to move, they can mobilize themselves. They can start to work out, develop a, a meditative practice, start eating differently. Because depression tends to immobilize us. And I think part of the art of working with this is to say, let's mobilize this. Let's find a way we can do this uh, without just telling you you should go to the gym or you should work out more or whatever. It's more like let's work with the roots of it. What's there? And it can start very early. The extreme would be someone who's depressed during birth, not emotionally, but physiologically, because if they didn't depress their vital signs, they would have died during the birth birthing process. So whenever they're faced with a very difficult situation, ah, the default, depress the vital signs, go flat. If that's never exposed and worked with, they'll probably have that pattern their entire life.
0: Now, Robert, in talking about your new book on emotional intimacy and creating a guidebook, really, to help people become more emotionally literate. Part of what you're doing is describing the emotions and the passions and then saying something like depression is not actually an emotion. It's actually masking other emotions. And I'm curious, in one person's work that I've been exposed to in categorizing emotions, they talk about sexual feelings, as an emotion, the feeling of being aroused, but that's not part of your emotional cartography. No, no,
1: I, that, to me, I would classify that as sensation. Sensation and feeling often get conflated, but um, one could be profoundly aroused sexually and be completely shut off emotionally. The excitation could mask as an emotion, and, and, but I think we have to separate sensation from, from emotional feeling even though emotional feeling includes sensation in the body, there's something quite different. Sexual arousal is, as I said, can be present without very much feeling going on. In fact, there could be almost an emotional disconnection from the partner, but there could be a lot of lust, a lot of, of heat, but not much light.
0: Now, what about jealousy and envy? Are those emotions in your system?
1: But the thing is, that they're what I would call um, compound emotions. They're, sort of, they're secondary. They're, they're not like a pure emotion unto themselves. Like if you look at jealousy, there's a whole mixture of things. There's anger in it. There's hurt. Um, there's the context of being replaced, rejected, cast aside, and very painful and um, worth getting to know very well because many people have done pretty crazy things when they were caught up in jealousy. The solution isn't not to ever be jealous. It's the solution is again. I sound like a broken record here, but to get intimate with it, get to know it really well, and and learn to love when you're not being loved. That's part of it too. Because one of jealousy's deepest cries is, "How can you do this? You're not. You don't love me." Maybe that's true, but if we lose our own heart because the other person has lost theirs, we're going down a very dark hole. And I think the Another key to working with jealousy is to get down to the hurt of it very quickly. Cut through the righteousness, the urge to violate the other person that's done this to you. Get to the hurt. Then your, your actions will be more skillful. And jealousy can really, really hurt. Most people will say that um, sexual jealousy is one of the most painful things they've ever experienced.
0: And then envy, you make a distinction with envy? is
1: more on the side. like And, and in jealousy, we feel like we, we've we kind of been separated from something that it should be ours it should be ours and envy we don't often f- feel so righteous it's less moralistic it's more like well we see what the other person has and we wish we had it but we're not or we don't have a sense of, i should have that and how dare they have that it's more passive except when we really go to the core of it then i think it turns to inspiration i mean i've envied people in my life where i went deeper and suddenly i felt inspired by them the envy transmuted and i felt wow they can do it i maybe i could do that or how lovely! And I would shift maybe from envy into mudita, you know, the Pali and Sanskrit term that means sympathetic joy. You know, another emotion that plays in here too. I, I was thinking of the one I loved writing about. It's called Schadenfreude. It's uh, taking pleasure in other people's misfortunes, and, it, and it's interesting. In English, we have no word for it. I guess because we're kind of embarrassed to admit we have it, but everyone seems to have it at some point in their life.
0: And what would you recommend in moments when schadenfreude shows up?
1: Well, acknowledge it and 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 really allow yourself to explore mudita. Because I think that that's a great antidote to it. To do whatever it takes to access joy for other people's successes. But prior to going to mudita fully, you one has to feel schadenfreude and stop shaming ourselves for having it because. Everyone sees someone who had, takes a spill that we perhaps didn't really like very much in the first place. So there can be a certain pleasure in it, and a lot of movies play off of that, you know, when the hero's humiliated and humiliated and finally goes and takes vengeance on the enemy. Many people feel a gratification in that. It's vicarious, but it's very strong. I think the key to for it is admit that it's there, you know, and and also... Share the embarrassment and shame of even saying, hey, I, I, I actually like seeing that person take a spill. A lot of humor is based on that. Mm-hmm. But a healthy dose of Mudita really helps.
0: Can you just illuminate a little further what you mean by Mudita and how to develop that?
1: Well, Mudita is a Pali or Sanskrit term that means sympathetic joy. That means feeling good for other people's successes and breakthroughs and triumphs. And I think to get there, we have to, first of all, acknowledge our schadenfreude, our envy, our jealousy of these others. Let that be there. And then there's a sense of of sensing the other people as beings that are struggling like us. They're having a success now. They could fall down tomorrow. They could be dead tomorrow. And just opening ourselves to their fullness of being, their suffering, all of that. And I think when we get emotionally intimate, intimate with our emotions, we become more capable of feeling other people's feelings, our empathy levels deepen and widen. We sense their pain, their suffering. So basically it's about opening ourselves to others' emotional whereabouts.
0: Now, Robert, at this point we've talked about a lot of different emotional experiences. And I'm curious to know, as you were writing the book, Emotional Intimacy, if you encountered, you know, this is the emotion that's still really the hardest one for me. This is the one that where I really get stuck.
1: I I felt that um, probably spread it over all the emotions. Like, just about, for me, where I would get stuck is not going even deeper with them. Because I already knew them really well. And, I think for me, in writing it, what happened to me that was perhaps more interesting was that I softened as I wrote it more. I felt something inside me widen and deepen. I felt more and more compassion for other people's emotional difficulties and for my own, especially when I was younger, and I felt my emotional reactivity lessen to where I became more capable of saying very quickly, say that Diane, when I was having a hard time, not something secondary that blamed the situation or was angry or something else. I go to the core very quickly and just feel the hurt of it really quickly, the wound of it, stay with that, breathe with it. I found myself developing that capacity more and more as I wrote about this because the whole topic is intimacy with emotion. and um, I was very affected by writing the book. I mean, it, it, it mushroomed from a fairly small piece of writing to something quite major for me, and I worked it. I had great editorial help. I reworked it reworked it, and um, I opened up to emotions. Like I remember working on joy, the chapter on joy, and just going deeper and deeper into what is joy, what are the types of joy, what's the shadows, what's the shadow of joy, all of it. And I was delighted to be, quote-unquote, forced to explore um, all these emotions and to try and make sense of them. And to bring forward everything I'd learned from 30-plus years of working with emotions with many, many people, and to bring that into written form. That was growthful for me.
0: Now, as we come to the end of this two-part conversation, Robert, I want to end by talking with you about spiritual bypassing and the emotions, because I know you've written on the topic of spiritual bypassing quite extensively. And I'm curious to know, how might somebody know when they're engaged in spiritual bypassing and not turning towards an emotional experience? Is there a way that we can learn to suss this out and sniff this out in well, one, ourselves? Well, one way
1: would be to, if we, if we label any emotions as negative, I think we're already perhaps on that path. And if we are overly enamored of positivity, things being positive and optimistic and upbeat, that can be a sign. Like perhaps, clearer sign is we we're, we may not feel that grounded. We may be get feedback from others that we're not that grounded, and we also may be overly enamored of, of of so-called high states, exalted states, non-dual this, non-dual that. And we may also another way it shows up big time to me is is when people stay in the shallows of relationship. There's too much. Oh, this is all perfect. Or, you know, the, the, bypass, the negating of anger and um, the relational part gets bypass, gets overlooked very easily when we're spiritually bypassing. So those, sometimes those signs can be very subtle, but they're there. And and I think one uh, overall I means someone who's caught up in a big time is going to be cut off in a relational sense. They won't be that very grounded, overly enamored of being in higher states, and not very vulnerable. Not very vulnerable. And probably defensive without looking defensive. Uh-huh. And also perhaps being what I would call blindly compassionate, like putting up with a lot of stuff that's really abusive and framing it as somehow a great teaching or something they should bow down to.
0: Now sometimes when I see spiritual bypassing in somebody else, I want to call it out. And I'm not convinced I always do this as skillfully as I could. And I'm curious what you have to say about that.
1: I'd say do it anyways. and Because you know what? if it's, you'll, you'll probably clean it up fairly quickly. I think it's better to voice it than not in most cases. And sometimes it's very hard to talk to someone who's caught up in that, especially if they're very um, verbally skilled and, and have lots of spiritual states to back them up. It can be fairly difficult to get through. I find the way I've gone through is when someone has there's some pain and we can address the pain and we can look at the roots to see here's a solution. Someone else may use a different method than spirituality, but here in your case, you've used spirituality, and we've all used we've all done things to get away from our pain. Every one of us and all of us on the spiritual path have done spiritual bypassing at different times. It just goes with the territory. So here we are. Let's just sit back and take a good look at it. I would approach that person with compassion. But I also wouldn't be too soft. I'd want to penetrate a little bit, and, I'd, and if things were really bothering me, I'd probably make a bit of a fuss, just to address it, especially if they were close to me. I feel like I'd be doing more of a service to them by stepping into them than by just sitting back on the sidelines and staying quiet.
0: I love it. You're, you're saying just what I want to hear.
1: All right. I'm saying I'm saying yes to your, your the bluntness you probably can manifest.
0: Now, with Sounds True, you've created a program called Knowing Your Shadow, and yet, if material is in our own shadow, how are we going to discover it? Because by nature, it's in our shadow because you know what? You're we don't to want to see it. You are going to it through other
1: people's feedback and through relationship. Because would, you may not know it, but when you're in a relationship and you keep doing the same crazy thing with a partner over and over again, that's a sign, there's shadow material. It's, it's anything that's been unilluminated in us, in any part of our conditioning we have not dealt with. And it's uh, so worth doing. I, I don't call my work shadow work, but most of the work I'm doing is shadow work. I'm dealing with what's been pushed aside or rejected in people or ostracized, disowned. I was listening to one, one disc right before you and I talked. I, just, I forgot. I pretended it wasn't even me doing the disc. It was disc two and reactivity. I did all the practices, and I felt, wow, this is. Re- I really like this. I like being listening to something that guides me into this place that's a little dark in me. And I've done a lot of it, of course, already, but I found I can still go deeper, and it feels so good. And I'm so grateful, I actually, to you, it sounds true, that I actually was able to put together this program on shadow. I've had great feedback so far, and it's uh, and uh, it was hard work putting it together, but boy, I'm glad I did it.
0: But you said that the best way to get to know our shadow is relationally, but here people are working on their own with guided meditations. I mean, can we really get to know our shadow on our own? through meditative. To some degree, and, yeah. and also it is
1: relational in another sense. It's Relational, you're relating to yourself. Instead of relating from, say, your reactivity or your shame or guilt or whatever it is, the series the I'm teaching people how to relate to it. So we identify it, and people can usually follow that. And now, how do you relate to your reactivity? We all get reactive. So this, too, says, here's what it is, and now here's how to relate to it. Now, here's a practice for relating to it. So it is relational in that sense, and of course, once you learn that, then you can perhaps look at your relationships with other people and go, "Oh my God, here I am about to step on into automatic. I don't have to be an automatic." And it's such a liberating sense when we realize we can wake up in the midst of our reactivities, like having a dream at night—you don't know who you're dreaming—suddenly you realize this is a dream. How liberating! Same with reactivities, like a daytime trance—we wake up in the middle of it and lo and behold we have a lot more options humor returns, we connect more with the other person it's beautiful, but it requires that we step out of automatic and usually the thing unfortunately that does that for us is that our suffering, our suffering kind of puts us in a position where we, we need to step out of it, we don't want to keep hurting.
0: Would you say there are any telltale signs that one's shadow is in charge?
1: I'd say reactivity is sign, a clear sign. When we're being reactive, there's always some shadow material that's being activated. I'd say reactivity is the dramatization of shadow material that's been activated. Or we have a disproportionate reaction to something, shadow. We have a really rigid us-versus-them mentality around other people or cultures. Um, We have an over-the-top emotional reaction to something that's, that's relatively innocuous all signs of shadow is probably kicking in. Whenever we behave automatically or say the same old things over and over again to another person, same old behaviors, shadow.
0: So Robert, here's my very finalist, final, final question, which is our programs called insights at the edge. And I'm always curious to know what the edge is that somebody's working on in their own life, in their own journey.
1: I'd say my edge is is becoming even more intimate with all that I am. And and becoming more and more curious about what is still in the dark in me. And and exploring that with myself and with Diane. I love doing that. And that's 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 my edge and, and implicit in that is just going deeper and deeper and opening to the mystery of it all more and more fully. My age, really, I guess, um, in a nutshell, would be a deeper surrender to what's required. I know that's a fairly vague way to say it, but that's how it is for me. It's like opening more and more deeply. And just, I think, being close to my own death makes that all the more easy to do.
0: Robert Augustus Masters, a true lover of the depths and the darkness. I uh, thank you so much for being with us.
1: My my pleasure.
0: With Sounds True, Robert has published a new book called Emotional Intimacy, a comprehensive guide for connecting with the power of your emotions, and a six-session audio series called Knowing Your Shadow, Becoming Intimate With All That You Are. Soundstreet.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.